Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, everybody. Gabby Reese here. Please join me for my show where we're going to be talking about all things self-care. And I don't mean just eating and exercise. I'm talking stress, marriage, relationships, parenting, business, transitions. How do we figure out a way to be our best selves each and every day? So whether you're listening on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen, please join me. If you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. If you want to see some of the behind the scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday. Hi, friends, and welcome to the Papaya Podcast. I'm your hostess, trying her mostess, Sarah Nicole, and each week I'm going to be dishing out some sweetness mixed in with some seeds of wisdom or something like that. So get ready to get inspired, get candid, get real, because we are all in this digital space together. All right, everyone, welcome back. This week, we are talking about a saucy little topic, I guess. I'm not not shy of sex discussions, but this one's going to be a totally different one and one that has a lot of shame and stigma around it, but, and one that I didn't even, couldn't have even dreamed would be something that we'd be, have the opportunity to talk about on the podcast. So please welcome Georgia. And today we're talking about having a sexless marriage. So welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. All right. So I'm so glad you're here. First of all, we're in the same town. This is kind of sad that we're having to do this via yeah. computer, but yeah. I'm so glad we're doing it regardless because I actually have people in my relational world who have sexless marriages. And I remember when the first time I ever heard it, I was like, what? Like, why is that's not a relationship? You're basically roommates. You're just friends. Like, what are yeah. you talking about? And I had this like core belief system that was like, your sex is sex is such a core of your relationship. Like it's your whole relationship ties into intimacy and all that stuff. And then a friend of mine was pregnant and wasn't able to have sex during her pregnancy without risking it. And I was just like, oh man, that must be so hard. But I had so much grace and understanding for that because it was no longer about her. It was about, you know, how her body was serving a baby instead of like serving her relationship. Yeah. And it really just started to unfold for me that I was like, huh, this is something that we do, isn't it? So when- When you kind of brought that up, I was like, this is, this has to be talked about. And I'm so excited that you're willing to. So can you just start by kind of talking about 
being in a sexless marriage, how that's kind of come about and maybe, you know, the difference between a sexless marriage and sex and, you know, what that looks like. Yeah, I definitely think that that the biggest part is being in like a sexless relationship versus sex. I have come, it's just been over the last few years that I've really kind of sat down with myself and thought about things in a more conscious way and realized that sex is something that is just like a really wide umbrella, Mm. the term sex. Yeah. When I, I mean, even still my first reaction, if someone were to say a sexless marriage, I would assume that that means that there's zero intimacy. Right. Um, And that's definitely probably the biggest misconception. Now, I know that there are relationships out there where that is sort of the situation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that people are very happy in more uh, like sexually platonic relationships and that's what works for them. Um, but when I say that I'm in a sexist relationship, it is me sort of playing on the misconception that sex is mainly like penis vagina intercourse. Yes. And so we kind of misuse the word sex instead of using the word intercourse. So to clarify things, I am in like an intercourse free marriage. Yes. I have. Anyone who's sort of scrolled through my Instagram feed knows that I am a pretty open book. I appreciate sort of the connection that I've made with people through being open about my situations in regards to like chronic illness and mental illness. Uh, But this has sort of been one of the things that I myself have been more hesitant to talk about just because of the misconceptions and sort of worrying about what people were going to think about me as far as being a wife goes or people, how people are going to feel towards my husband. And so we've had to have lots of conversations. I let him know, obviously it's not going to be a surprise for him when people start hearing about it, but I think it's very important. It's something that I felt very alone in for a very long time. And while I haven't met anyone in my exact situation, Mm -hmm. I've, been overwhelmed by other women who are in similar situations and are thankful that there's someone who wants to talk about it first. Yeah. You kind of always need a first person and then it kind of breaks the ice and we can discuss other things. I so agree with you. And and I think that the one thing that when you first started talking about, you know, sex kind of being this umbrella, it brought me back to what it was like to be a teenager who was like saving herself for marriage Yeah, and was so like, oh, but all the other things aren't sex. And then getting married and being like, oh my gosh, the other things that I was participating in were almost more intimate and more like feeling like a sexual activity than the things that was intercourse. And I was just so taken aback that these were considered like sexual acts, but it wasn't sex. And I'm like, what is sex anymore? Like, what is it? And it really like brings up that discussion because if we don't create narratives, even like this, it doesn't really give a lot of room for like growth and understanding, even when it comes to like the autonomy that we have over our bodies. And I, I feel like the second layer to that. And one that I would love for you to kind of talk on is just the idea that like our bodies and the way that we're raised in society now is so ingrained to be a sexual creature. Like our core purpose is to have Mm -hmm. sex and like recreate, like that's kind of what we make babies. And, you know, I'm just like, well, what, what, there's gotta be, 
it's kind of an unlearning to know that like there is more to us. Like you were even saying, like some people are in platonic marriages and are completely happy in that. And some people, their sexual activity is not intercourse, someone like you, right. And, and still like you were a mother, you, you know, you're a mental health advocate, you're, you're a wife and you are still somebody who is like an intercourse free marriage. And that doesn't take away from you as a woman, but Mm -hmm. has that been a struggle for you to kind of redefine womanhood for yourself without the context of your, your body being for the purpose of a vagina? Let's just say it. Yeah. Yeah. In the beginning. So I will start by saying that this situation, (laughs) this journey uh, started six years ago. Six years. My son, who is also a Bowden. Yeah. We have a, we have double (laughs) Bowdens. I love that for us. My, he will be six in about a month. And so for me, I can kind of get into the logistics of things a little later if you want, but it started immediately postpartum for Mm. me. The way that my vagina was treated during my delivery and the way that it healed, that's really when it started. Mm -hmm. And so in the very beginning, I was overwhelmed like we all are with new babies. And I was told and, you know, kind of commiserated with all of my mummy friends that sex, you know, very soon within the near future after having a baby is probably going to be uncomfortable, mm-hmm. um, especially if you've delivered vaginally. Um, oh, you know, that is natural and it's beautiful that is, as it is. That's like a trauma that your vagina has gone through and things kind of have to figure themselves out after. And so I just totally put my discomfort on the back burner and assumed that I was just kind of being a sucky baby about it and that that's just kind of how everyone felt, even though no one was talking about it, about feeling the same way that I was. I just assumed that that's just kind of how it was. And we waited a long time before even trying after having a baby. And I always just kind of had a really good excuse, you know, that we had a new baby and that was overwhelming and all of that sort of thing. And when we did finally start trying, I just sort of bit the bullet and kept how bad I was to myself, even from my husband. And I think that was, in hindsight, that was a mistake. (laughs) But that was just sort of how I figured it should be because sex, again, is something that women are thought to need to provide in a, you know, in a male-female relationship. My husband was so wonderful. And, you know, in my head, it was something that he deserved. It was something that he, I mean, he's always, I know that it's generically speaking that men have more of a sex drive than women do in many cases. And that's always sort of been the situation for us. You know, it was just something that I wanted to be able to do for him, but also felt like I needed to do for him. Um, And so I just sort of bit the bullet and kept it to myself how painful it was. As things continued, um, our situation got much worse. That's sort of where the whole, like we finally had to sort of start redefining what our relationship was and what our sexual relationship was. Um, And it took a long time for me to get there first Mm -hmm. um, and to stop pretending um, in order for us to kind of 
come to an understanding, which wasn't super easy. No, of course um, not. It was very hard on both of us. We both had very different feelings about things and kept different feelings from each other. So that was a huge learning curve for us. You know, we've never had like a huge thing that we needed to figure out together. That's a doozy. Like that's a big one. Yes. And it is a huge thing. You know, we're not wrong to assume or to state that intimacy is a huge part of a relationship. I think it's just a misconception um, that sex is the intimacy that is the most important part of a relationship. I think it's funny too. I always think about this and the fact that like, we will literally take a dick in our mouth, but we're like, Oh, but talk about our feelings and like how this feels for me. It's so hard. Like like, intimacy is like so messed up for us because we haven't, we, we, we don't recognize that like intimacy is actually so much more deeply layered. You can, and, and and say that to anybody who's ever had a casual relationship, they know like there are things that can like deeply, you know, tie you to somebody through acts of sexual activity, but intimacy can also look completely different. And I think, especially now with the, with the relationship styles happening in quarantine, we're seeing that now intimacy is actually changing, but it, I have to say, hearing you say that story, it's brought me back like 14 years now. I had a (laughs) piece. So basically my doctor was delivering a baby at the same time as another person in the room next door. So we had four minutes of birth difference time. I found out the next day there, she literally just cut and pulled. And my, I remember at the time you couldn't get an epidural and still have midwives. So the midwives were like there. And I remember just the horror on their face. And afterwards they were like, that wasn't right. That shouldn't have happened. Like, we're so sorry that that happened. And I was like, what? Like, I'm fine. Like, I'm totally fine. Yeah. And it was like immediately as soon as the meds were off and I was like, wow, definitely not fine. And then it was like, you know, six weeks later and you're supposed to start having sex. And I was like, well, I am obviously it's going to be painful. Like that makes sense. Like, look what just happened. Like just got to like grin and bear and like get through and get through. Yeah. It ended up my entire healing took over a year, like an entire yeah. year because I just didn't mm-hmm. know that I could have a different experience. I didn't know how to yeah. express it. I barely knew how to like express asking for pleasure, let alone admitting pain. So it was just an yeah. on. And I, and I, knowing that that's your story and knowing that that's mine story, we're like two people. I can't imagine how many yeah. there are. I, I just know that it's huge. Yeah. And you actually sent over some stats. I don't know if you know them off the top of your head, but you did say that 78% have experienced pain during sex, but only five have said the pain is regular still. When you say regular still, are we talking like one year postpartum, two years? Like how long, like you're saying it's been six years for, for me, the bubble yeah. of those that you've met. Is this an, is this deeply uncommon or is that still a stat that kind of sticks? Those numbers are coming just from a survey. Mm-hmm. I posted a handful of questions just to my Instagram yeah. followers most of which are women, most of which are mothers with varied, I don't know a ton of moms that just have the one baby. So most of them have been through multiple deliveries. And so with that stat, yes, it's just meaning that many, I had to kind of go back and change the first question. That one question was like, have you, first I asked, have you experienced pain during sex? And then I was asking, do you still? Mm -hmm. And it was pointed out to me a lot that I needed, because I just kind of had a yes and a no, and I needed a sometimes answer. And so even adding that, and it was still a very small percentage of 
like the 300 people who were answering these questions. But yes, that many of them, the women experienced it postpartum within the first year or two. And it is something that, you know, like you said, your midwives apologized to you for what had happened. And you said, well, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. And that was just, I mean, my labor and delivery was completely traumatic. And I remember very little of it, but I just feel like that's just how it was. And I just figured that's kind of how it always goes. And plenty of people get episiotomies or tear during a vaginal delivery. And I just figured that's just how it happens. And it's one of the things that I was never really told about. I was never, when we did checkups postpartum, we, it was, we were checking up on the baby and how the baby was doing and growing and progressing. I was never asked how my vagina was feeling. I was asked and I just said no, because I was like done. I was right. done. I was like, Tom, yeah. and Harry have all had their fingers on me. My midwives were yeah. like so attentive, but I was like 21. I was like, I'm, I'm done. Yeah. I've, I've retired from the business of more people looking at my vagina. Yeah. And I remember yeah. I was like, I'm still kind of in pain. To be honest, what we figured out afterwards was that I wasn't healing. So my stitches actually didn't, I had gotten an infection. And so my stitches weren't actually coming out as they should have like a week later, they were in for six weeks. Like they had embedded themselves holding on to like this infection. And I remember like, I finally was like, yeah, like my stitches haven't really come out yet. And they were like, you need to be like basically airing out your vagina every day and like icing it. It was just, it's a lot, but like there is sometimes they even ask the questions, but it's hard. For someone like me, I was just like, I don't want to. I don't want to deal. Yeah. It's fine. It'll be, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Like we, it was hard to advocate for, you know, my vagina at that time. As like now, as strong and confident as uh, of a female, as I think that I am, it took me a long time yeah. to be able to say like, no, this, I understand that you as a man or you as a doctor who's never had a baby, right. I understand how you think that this is normal or that this looks normal or this is how it should feel, but it's not. Mm-hmm. And I know I was incredibly nervous going into trying to have a conversation with someone about this not feeling right. And is there any sort of treatment? Like, do they do they do and like did they listen? Was there any sort of like next steps for you? So my situation, like little backstory, I had a an episiotomy okay. while delivering. Mm-hmm. And that is where they snip you to make the vaginal opening a little bigger. Bone had a giant head. He what is it with stuck. bones? They have giant, giant <laughs> yeah. heads. They told me in an ultrasound, they're like, he's, he's got a head the size of a oh, one month old. And I was still four <gasps> weeks from delivering. And I was like, oh, they were trying to induce yeah. me because just giant headed baby still is like, yeah. I'm surprised he can walk straight. <laughs> just giant heads. Okay. Yeah. And so we needed more room and that was fine. I had been, you know, actively in labor for a long time and I wasn't stretching out. So that was fine. I knew ahead of time what an episiotomy was, It was, which came from me Googling, just being, you know, up at night, pregnant and Googling sort of all these different things. And episiotomy was something Mm -hmm. that I became aware of. It wasn't something that I discussed with like the doctors first or anything, but I knew that that was a thing and whatever. It was fine with me at the time. I was so nervous about having to have a C-section. That's what I was like scared of. 
And so I was like, well, fine, if you have to cut my vagina, that's fine, but just don't chop me in half. And, um, and so that's what happened. I had like a very straightforward episiotomy. I know they can kind of go at like different mm-hmm. angles and there's different degrees. Um, but I was not tearing naturally. And so they, he did an episiotomy. It was just straight back, like an inch or two, um, nothing super invasive. It stayed like within the vaginal area. Mm-hmm. Nothing had to go back too far, which is nice. But for me, where the problem started is that I was working with, an OBGYN who as wonderful as he was and as much as I truly believe that he saved my life because he was the first doctor after many, many, many doctors and specialists who took my illness seriously Mm -hmm. and eventually diagnosed my endometriosis. It turns out was very archaic in many of his beliefs and practices. Oh, I know what's coming. I I know it's coming. (laughs) So I am the only person that I know out of people who I have talked to personally um, who received a husband stitch. Now explain the husband stitch. I'm familiar because my mother taught me long ago. Wow. (laughs) And see, that's like a thing. That's one of the questions that I put out to my followers were, have you ever heard of it? Mm. And the vast majority said no, but I just Googled it. And I was all of a sudden like overwhelmed with all of these horrified messages in my inbox. Like, are you serious? Is this a real thing? And so the husband stitch is a very old practice um, that was, of course, invented by a man that essentially it is an extra purposefully um, extra stitch or two when repairing the vagina. Mm-hmm. So whether you've torn naturally or an episiotomy has been performed, you know, you're, of course, they have to stitch you back up again, which is horrifying enough <laughs> as it is. Stitches in your vagina. It's the worst place to have stitches. I've had many stitches in your vagina. Stitches. It's horrifying. Yes. Uh, fairy bottles, <laughs> fairy yeah. bottles for days. Yeah. Oh man, when I had shingles yeah. recently, I was like, oh God, the peri bottle, like this, this is now apparently they have new ones that like angle for you. Like you shoot it down and, oh, and really? I was like, wow, we are advanced. Yeah. We've gotten new yeah. peri bottles. <laughs> peri bottles are like this, like you fill it with like Epsom salt water and you spray it on your own vagina because you literally can't wipe when you have stitches. We're horrifying people. No, but this is good information. Everyone needs it to is- know it. <laughs> Um, and so it's an extra stitch or two mm-hmm. in the vagina that comes with the assumption that in general, according to society, a smaller vagina is better. Mm-hmm. It is not better in any way, shape or form for the woman on whom it is being performed. It is thought to be better for the husband, which is why it's called the husband stitch. In a lot of articles that I've read, written by women um, and a lot of female specialists who say that is absolutely unnecessary Mm -hmm. practice. It started out apparently as like a backdoor agreement between the doctor and the husband. Yes. But now the women who have written about it and who have talked about it, the husbands are just as in the dark as the woman is. And that's what it was for us. Um, Like I said, my labor and delivery was fairly traumatic. I was on a lot of drugs. My hips dislocated a few times within my labor. So I, on top of like the epidural and stuff, I was on like some real drugs and was fairly like 
blackout drunk throughout the whole thing. But one of the things that I do remember after they rushed Bodinaw, um, Nolan was going to follow the nurses with Bowden and he let me know that he was going to start stitching up and he like made this super passive, super casual joke saying, don't worry, daddy, she'll be good and tight. And I just sort of, I didn't even give it a second thought. I was in such like a state of what I had no brain power left. Um, and just didn't even think about it. And really that's the horrifying part is that that's when it happens. Um, not only are you not giving consent, but you're not even in the right state of mind to give consent yeah, to something like that's that. That's such a good point. And that's, that's really what's hit me lately when like sitting down and thinking about mm-hmm. having this conversation with you. Um, I am someone who has gone through sexual assault and it took me, it was a long, it was only recently that I almost related the two of those that in this situation, I didn't give consent. Mm -hmm. Even if I had, I wasn't in the right state of mind to give consent to it. And for most women who receive a husband's stitch, it ends up the same way that it has for me. And that is that sex is remarkably painful. I say that it's worse for me because my husband and I like just fit together Mm -hmm. beforehand. Um, The husband stitch was sort of a way to combat this very ridiculous notion that any woman who has a baby and pushes a human being out of their vagina, a large human being coming out of this small space must have a really loose vagina. Right. Um, Such a misconception. And I totally understand, you know, how people would believe something like that. I did initially, and I, you know, as silly as it seems, I was sort of looking forward to more of a mom vagina because like I said, my husband and I really just fit together in a set in a way that is enjoyable as sex was prior to all of this. It like took a few minutes to sort of work things in before it was really enjoyable. And so I thought like, it's fine with me if things get stretched out a little <laughs> bit during this whole process. When, of course, you know, lucky as luck would have it, things went in the complete opposite direction. So where I was already too tight in my personal opinion, in our personal Mm -hmm. relationship, now things were just so much worse. And so even now, six years later, when we try to have sex, intercourse, when we try to have intercourse, (laughs) um, I still end up with tears. Yeah. Um, micro tears are like paper cuts in your vagina. Yeah, it's the worst. And that is the experience that most women have. Now, I know you asked about like next steps and stuff. And so for me personally, that happened six years ago, the initial episiotomy and the initial stitches. Um, and I was always just told like, it's going to heal. Yep. It's going to be fine. Yep. Whenever I brought it up, Again, this OBGYN that I was working with, he would give like my husband like a, oh, poor you kind of look oh my because gosh. he wasn't getting sex. I was the one who was in pain and yeah. he was tearing and bleeding and whatever, and you know, just clenching my teeth, wanting to get things over with. But 
it's really unfortunate that like a man is not getting the sex that he deserves. And because of that, again, like as confident as I think that I am, that really sort of shut things down. Like, well, I'm just not going to fight anyone on this topic right now. We would sort of grit and bear it in those first, that first like year and a half. Again, it would be incredibly painful and uncomfortable for like the first five or 10 minutes. Um, But we would just kind of do it and it would eventually get a little better. Everything internally worked perfectly normally. A lot of people, one of the other questions that I had put out there was just like, what could be reasons? What's a reason that you can think of that a woman would experience pain during sex? And most of it was lubrication. Mm -hmm. Whether like physically and hormonally, they're not um, naturally producing enough lubrication. Um, And that was never the situation for me. Um, And I was always able to, I've still always been able to climax. Everything internally works perfectly fine. It's just like the very, very opening of my vagina. And so two years later is when I had my hysterectomy. And I had, as treatment for my endometriosis, I had a vaginal hysterectomy. Um, What does that mean? They use, um, they use little cameras, which they, they do teensy tiny, like your little laparoscopic incisions in your abdomen. And they put the cameras in to see everything, but they remove everything through like a hole in the top of inside there. And that's where they pull everything out. And depending on, like I went into it knowing that, and hoping that they would need to redo those stitches, like redo that area. Um, and I did in turn have a gigantic uterus <laughs> to come out. And so they did, they had to make more room. And that was, and I was hopeful that that was going to make a huge difference, mm. that redoing it was going to make a huge difference. But it didn't. Um, that didn't help. And it, again, it was, of course, in hindsight, you know, it was silly of me to go through all of this with the same doctor that sort of created the problem in the first right, place. Of course. But I just continued to give him the benefit of the doubt because of all the good that he had done for me, assuming that he would be able to fix what he had destroyed. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so that was two years later. And then another year or so later. So this is about almost two years ago yeah. now. I ended up having a huge cyst growing like along the like inside, but along that scar tissue that is there. And so that was a totally separate procedure. They went and did that. And I kept saying like, I would like it to be bigger. But as I've learned now, I mean, we had also hoped that maybe that giant cyst was also causing some of the discomfort. Constriction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, And so again, I got my hopes up. Um, But... In hindsight, it is something that I should have been seeing a specialist for. Yes. Not like a doctor who does sniff and stitch vaginas, but someone who specialized in reconfiguring your skin and stuff down there. Because what is sent, what initially causes the, the irritation and everything is that instead of like you're stitching together skin that has come apart... And that makes sense. And those like two raw ends are meant to be put back together. And that's what heals yeah, exactly. the best. Um, but trying to force not detached skin together is what created all the problems for me. 
it's like taping two fingers together and expecting them to stick. Like that's exactly what it is, right? Yeah, yeah. And so going through now three situations of being snitched and re-sewn, it is much worse now. So really, it's just been these last two years where intercourse has been sort of off the table for us. Because now not only is the entrance too small, but it's like a brick wall because of all of the scar tissue. Yeah, scar tissue is a big thing too. Like after my episiotomy, and I think we kind of have to go down to like anatomy 101. Like your body is meant to heal from a vaginal delivery. Like, and I know a lot of people are like, oh, I would love a husband stitch like that. I would love that. I would love to be a little bit tighter, but thinking, think about it. Like I realize now uh, that was one of my main concerns having children was, is my vagina going to be too loose when I get out of this? Because again, thinking of my body in a way that it's a sexual servant, how is it going to appease my partner? So these are major concerns that a lot of people have going in because they don't want to feel like they're not you know, pleasing their partner. And I think at its core, there's a lot of sweetness in that. There's a lot of like care and love in that. But I had those same fears and I didn't realize that, you know, our bodies are actually meant to heal. Like our skin is an elastic. It's meant to heal in certain ways. Vaginas are very, very resilient. So while I ended up having this like massive wall of scar tissue because I delayed my healing and all that stuff, it still remained like in my head being like something that would be such an issue. And I I recognize now that that fear put into me so much. So now like got three kids, my stitches with Bowden and his big head. I, they, when I did like the six weeks later, look at your vagina with a mirror like thing. Yeah. I realized that the stitch didn't actually take. So like, I have what I like to call my trick labia because she's just open. Like she's got a little V and I remember getting into a relationship with Shane and I was like, well, he doesn't have kids. I've had three. I've got a trick labia. I've got scar tissue. Yeah. Is this even going to be like tight enough, satisfying? Like the thoughts that I had kind of crazy when you think about how huge sex was. And I remember like afterwards being like, so like I'm a mom. And he's like, honestly, you've got nothing to worry about. And I was, he was like, yeah. it's you, he's like, you've built something in your head that you've compared yourself to like basically my teenage self. And he's like, you've got, he's like, very, like a plus we're good to go. So like this whole husband stitch narrative, I just kind of want to like reiterate that it, your body will heal and in actually mm-hmm. in sex, the reason foreplay is so important is because it's actually meant to relax your vagina, to actually yeah. soften it's it. It's supposed to get a little it's, bigger. It's yeah. only supposed to get tight when you're climaxing. It's not meant, it's supposed yeah. to relax. It's actually supposed to open yeah. and, and do that. So like this whole tight vagina narrative is really mm-hmm. not serving us whatsoever. And it's not serving our partners either because they're, no. they're experiencing sex intercourse, but they're not experiencing the true intimacy of two partners coming together for one pleasurable experience. And I think yeah. that's such a, that's such a different thing that we kind of, it's like an unlearning and a relearning, but I, I kind of want to ask for that now. Like you, one thing you kind of mentioned is like your, your sexual relationship now, is it more, does it feel like more work? Because it's, I hate to say it, it's not as simple as just like laying down together yeah. and like bumping, yeah bumping bits. Like this is, this, it's a yes. lot more complicated. And so I, like I had said, my sex drive is lower mm-hmm. my husband's and that's just sort of how it's always been, but it's always been fine for us. Um, but yes, now that we're in sort of this situation where even just like non-intercourse, like not penis 
Penetration yep. still requires a lot of foreplay. Yes, a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Um, for him, it takes longer to sort of finish yep. without having intercourse. And there is that sort of where like my bitterness for the whole situation comes from. Um, I, I already have a lower sex drive. I have incredibly sick days still. Mm -hmm. So those are days that we're obviously not going to have sex. Um, You know, we have a kid and everyone's working and it's busy and I would love, I mean, all I want would be to be able to just bang one out with my husband when we have like 10 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. And not being able to do that is what makes me very bitter because it is, it is so much work and that work really make us less Mm -hmm. like, let's do this. We kind of have to schedule things and like, make sure it happens right after the kid goes to bed. We can't just like come to bed at 11 o'clock and be like, sure, let's do this. Because now it's going to be midnight 11 by the o'clock. time yeah, that's, no, that's, that's already <laughs> three hours past my bedtime. <laughs> no, it's so true. And there's, and, and I think there's so much right now. One thing that I've really learned a lot is, especially within like the pandemic happening, is a lot of people expected that this was like, everyone's just going to be having more sex. And that's yeah. not the reaction, yeah. like stress layers into yeah. that, you know, circumstances lay into that. You're a lot of like, Hey, we've literally moved from the living room to the bedroom. That's not an exciting thing yeah. for me. It yeah. makes sense that we would kind of not be having as much sex or you're having more sex. It's all kind of okay. And I think that the yeah. one thing I love about this conversation is it kind of gives permission to each individual couple while you're still struggling and there is bitterness there and there's frustration and pain And like, you're still having to continue on this journey of like, what are these next steps? It's also allowed you to kind of redefine what intimacy looks like in a relationship. What does that mean to you? How is that like your, your relationship, would you say has gotten stronger through this? Yeah. I think that the thing that I do want to highlight is that while I say that we're in a sexless marriage, we are still in a very positive, like very functional Mm -hmm marriage. Mm -hmm. There were times absolutely where, because I was just so terrified of even trying. Um, and I was just so, so shut off from it that he of course took it incredibly personally, which still took, you know, admittedly took me time to understand that even though he's not the one who's physically in pain, um, and who's physically suffering, he was still mentally suffering because we are also taught, especially men, that that physical intimacy is how we are shown love. And so, of course, it was natural for him to assume that I just wasn't attracted to him anymore um, and I didn't want to have sex anymore. Um, and so that was definitely a huge hurdle for us to get over. Your husband's a hottie, so I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> like, I don't even know if that's appropriate to say, but like also like funny that he would be like, oh, yeah. like, are you, like you're kind of, yeah. he's kind of hot. <laughs> and on top of that, I have not had many, sorry, I've had two boyfriends prior to my husband and they're the only like sexual Mm -hmm. partners that I've had. And so I don't have a ton to compare it to, but it was by far like the most enjoyable Mm -hmm. sex for Mm -hmm. me. He was the first person who ever put like my needs and my wants and my pleasure, um, even on like the table, let alone putting it first. 
Um, and so that also adds to sort of just the general pissed offness of the situation. But yes, we have, you know, we have found ways it's taken a while, you know, it's been two years since we've totally gotten it in there. There are different things that we've used and we can talk about that if you want, um, that have sort of helped kind of keep us in the same like realm of intercourse, but it is incredibly possible as I can attest to now that, um, a couple, whether it's a man and a woman or a same sex couple can have an intimate relationship and can exchange and feel pleasure together without just the straight up intercourse. Well, and let's be real. If you're a woman, you know, like intercourse is probably second on your list or maybe even third. Right. I would say self-love's first, oral second. Yeah. Like, like the, well, maybe oral first, but like, regardless, like it kind of floats in there. It's not like, Ooh, that's the one. It's just that that's the one that often makes us feel like it's the most intimate. But once you understand and grasp, like your most vulnerable state. And I don't know, there's so many more layers to it and that openness, but that vulnerable state and that openness also comes into expressing your own needs. And I think that's what I really love about what you're doing and what you're speaking on is the fact that there are so many people who are actually suffering in true silence, whether it's in their relationships, whether it's like amongst their friends, nobody's having this conversation. Maybe you've come across them. I've never come across them. People aren't having this conversation. And the yeah. fact that you, and with the support of your husband as well, that this is not the, you're actually helping people. It's not the end of a relationship. Exactly. I think so many people are scared to get into the conversation. Mm-hmm. I mean, first and foremost, there are so many reasons that women experience pain during sex, whether it's regular pain, whether it happened just after having a baby there are so many different conditions. There are so many different mental and physical reasons that women go through this. Yes. And, um, and we don't talk about Mm -hmm. it. And so it doesn't seem, it seems very abnormal and very scary. Um, and because of this perception that sort of society has put on us, that sex is so important, that intercourse is so important. And then that's such a huge part of what it like, of, our role as women or mm-hmm. as partners and wives, um, people are scared to also talk to their partners about this, whether it's about pain or feeling, whether it's about not feeling enough pleasure themselves, because they're scared that that's going to be kind of the end of things. Mm-hmm. Like to, it's easy to assume that telling a man that like, I'm actually not orgasming every time yeah. I say that I am, or every time that we're having just yeah. plain old missionary sex that is, I can be terrifying because, you know, that is just, it's a misconception that that is not normal. Mm -hmm. And so I think people are scared to have that conversation, not just with like friends and the public and all of Instagram, but just with their partners in private, because no sex seems like that would be the end of a relationship. Yes, it does. And I'm glad, you know, part of me wanting to be more open about it is just to let people know that it doesn't have to be kind of the be all end all within a relationship. I love that. I honestly, I can't thank you enough. This is just, I think it's just a discussion that needed to happen. And I can't thank you enough for like coming and sharing it in this way. Um, But I kind of want to give you a chance for like other people to kind of dive into your story because there's 
like following you. I think I've followed you since you've had Bowdoin. I think so. Yeah. Um, so following you for so long, you're very multifaceted. If you go to her page, you're not just going to like see all about sex stuff. It's a lot about being a woman. It's a lot about motherhood and it's trials and tribulations. It's a lot about mental health, about endometriosis, about healing. Just there's so much, so many layers to who you are and like the things that you've advocated for. Like you're just a really kick-ass feminist person and I adore you. But tell everyone where they can find you because I want people to kind of dive in and like get uncomfortable with maybe potentially even talking about their own discomforts for the first time, um, maybe in their relationships, in their marriage, maybe advocating when they go into that delivery room and making sure that they ask for the things that they want for their vaginas without just assuming that the doctor is going to, you know, do that for them. And I have to say, just to put in for a second, that that was finally having a conversation with my little sister. Um, I'm the only one in the family who has had a baby and we're obviously only having one. Um, so it's a very tiny family, but my sister who's, you know, in this amazing relationship now and will at some point, I'm sure get married and start her own family. Had like finally talking about this with her, really just giving her like the lowdown on what you and I were going to be mm-hmm. talking about, because it's not something that I've talked about with my family either really. Oh, my family um, learns about me on here all the time. <laughs> all the time. Yeah. Um, it'll be like a full disclosure. Yeah. You know, if you listen to this, it's all about my yes. vagina. Um, but it was something that she had never yeah. heard about. And it was obviously something that I had never heard about. So I never in a million years would have mentioned it. But it is something, you know, I am grateful that talking about this, you know, while most of my friends have finished ha- like making their families, there are people who are younger who have been following along. And it's, it is one of those things where when you're making your birth planning, you're thinking of all these things that you do want to do. We're not aware of these things that we want to make, you know, loud and clear that there are things that we do not want to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that unfortunately that is something that has to be said yes. out loud. It has to be agreed upon beforehand, before, you know, you're in the throes of labor and you're losing your mind that just like, LOL, as a heads up, I don't want a husband mm-hmm. stitch. Um, otherwise, it's something that just seems to happen. Yeah. And so, yes, that is, you know, I'm glad that, you know, I can at least help people advocate for that. At the very minimum, just to know and and to yeah. not have a story like mine or yours where you just grin and bear it and make the whole situation so yeah. much worse. Like I am healed, yeah. but I mean, looking back, it shouldn't have been so long and it shouldn't have been so painful. And yeah. that could have been really avoided yeah. by asking the right questions. And, you know, there's also, if you live in Canada as well, now this is just hearsay from my sister's midwife that I asked during her delivery, but there are options for, um, like repair afterwards as well that is covered under medical things. So like, don't be afraid to go, like, don't think that it, don't assume maybe necessarily that it's going to be a really expensive procedure to go and, you know, advocate for yourself for this. There are some options within the Canadian health system that could actually lend themselves to you. Which honestly is stuff that I am just coming around to researching um, and reaching out to different doctors. You know, it's taken me this long to sort of be like, okay, we're not going to get a divorce if we never have sex Mm -hmm. again. You know, we wanted to really come to that conclusion and make that really obvious for both of us. 
but also like I would still like yes. to have sex again someday, yeah. you know, or if something were to ever happen and I were to have to find another partner, like I don't want like the opening statement to be like, really nice to meet you. How small is your penis? Because it needs to be really small. Not going to work out Um, here. Just so you know. (laughs) Then you're like Tinder profile. Yeah. (laughs) Do not apply. It's taken me this long personally to be in a place where I'm like, let's be more proactive. Even if this is something that's going to cost money. Um, that is something that like we as a couple are okay spending money on. But like you said, there are certain avenues that we can look through. Um, And I am, I will be definitely sharing more of that. I'm so excited. um, As it comes. I think think it's going to be regardless. It never, it never takes away from the story and it's whole and like your experience. I think a lot of times we connect with people when they're in, you know, those hardship places and we forget to kind of celebrate through that healing. So I hope that's something that we kind of get to journey through with you. But for those listening, where can they tune into that? Where can they find you on the Instagrams and on the social media so that they kind of can tap into the story with you? So most of it is through just my Instagram feed, which is at always George, G-E-O-R-G-E. Um, and I do have a blog that is always linked through yep. my Instagram Perfect. page, um, which started out as me just talking through my anxiety, but has sort of morphed into more of just what I've been going through personally. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. This is, I'm just, do you know that my top podcast episode that I've ever done was the one about vaginas? So I'm telling you right now. Yeah we're ready for it. I think we're so curious and people aren't talking. And the fact that we've been able to have this conversation on this platform just means the world to me. So thank you for sharing your story. Keep sharing it as much as you have capacity for it, because it's, I think it's going to be incredibly important and help a lot of vaginas. (laughs) Yeah. No. And I mean, thank you for sharing the platform and for opening up conversations about stuff that most of us feel uncomfortable talking about. There's a good about. pun in there if you want to use, like a good enough opening <laughs> up. Okay, we're just going to end, gonna end it there. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you everyone so much for tuning in. Uh, like Georgia said, go check her out at Always George on Instagram and we will see you next week. Well, friends, thank you so much for tuning in and listening to today's episode. For more information on this episode, check out the show notes or find us on Instagram at The Papaya Podcast. And if you loved what you just listened to or know somebody who would, please share it. Simply screenshot today's episode in the podcast app and share it to your Instagram stories. And don't forget to tag us. Last but not least, if you'd like to lend your personal support to the podcast, take a moment and leave a review on iTunes. We would be oh so grateful. Tune in next week for a fresh new episode of the Papaya Podcast, and we'll see you then.